0: California Frontier Podcast, Episode 7. The California Frontier Podcast is dedicated to helping you explore the Golden State's unique history, culture, and environment. I'm Damian Bassage, and I'm your host. this episode of the California Frontier Podcast, we're going to pick up with part two of my interview with Professor Marie Christine Dugan. Now, in the first half of the interview, uh, which I really recommend you go back and listen to uh, before you listen to this one, if you haven't already, um, Christine talked about work that she started doing on account books of various missions in California, and. An account book might seem to us or seem to somebody who doesn't know any better to be uh, something fairly dry and uh, full of numbers or, or just um, notes about products or, or other types of records, but they really turned out to be snapshots of life inside the missions. And the things that she talked about uh, gave us a window into the relationships on the missions, the power structures, the way money was spent, how people lived, and I think that she really uncovered some aspects of mission life that most of us, even those of us who are really interested in it, don't know about. So in the second half of the interview, we're going to hear more about not only mission life in California, but how did California interface with this whole vast empire that Spain controlled at the time. And in particular, uh, its relationship with trade up and down the coast and the Far East. So I hope you'll enjoy this second half of my interview with Marie Christine Dugan.
1: I guess that's the way it is with scholars, that you have so much, you learn about a hundred times more than you publish. But I have been slow to publish, and it's partly because I'm busy, but it's also because, um, I, you know, I'm really only interested in publishing things that break new ground. So I'm not really interested in saying, you know, like missions had wheat fields and here it is. We always knew they had wheat fields and here's the wheat field. (laughs) I'm only really interested in saying we always thought missions were just churches and it turns out they were lands the size of modern counties and And it's hard, you know, when you are always trying to publish something new, there's a lot of pushback. And, um, you know, sometimes I deal with the pushback, but sometimes I just get discouraged.
0: Right. Especially, like you said, when you've got a lot on your plate, right? (laughs) Yeah,
1: (laughs) Yeah, and my mind goes on to the next topic, you know. Yeah, I do have a lot on my plate, but I think that's also, like somebody told me once that, the harder you have to work at something, the more important it is to, to have really big accomplishments. And I think because it's been hard to continue to do scholarship as a mother, and you know, this isn't hasn't been a happy time for public higher ed, but so then I really want to when I finally publish something, I want it to be something pathbreaking and new.
0: Right. And I I did that. Interesting things. Yeah. They're interesting. You brought up so many things that I think are not very well known that, I mean, we could, we could go a million different directions, but I, one of the things, let's say, if we circle back, one of the things you mentioned about, was it father Martinez at San Luis Obispo about uh, the militia and accompanying him into battle. What do you think about that? the, because the Franciscans, right, had this very, um, very much almost a pacifist ethos, at least on paper, and the idea of a militia of of Northern Shumash accompanying um, the friar into battle is something that you seems completely unexpected. Um, I don't think
1: friars at the time viewed this in the same way that we do, because there was, uh, you know, I I don't think that people viewed picking up a sword as a immoral act. Um, I think there was more controversy about dealing with money, so engaging in the market economy was for a Franciscan to engage in the market economy was something that they were concerned about among themselves and that other people could criticize them about. So when people criticized Martinez, it was that he made too much money. And he did make a lot of money because there was a cove called Chano and he could export products in the... Northern Chumash at San Luis Obispo apparently had textile operation that was quite good and I don't know if I don't know if he exported that or if he sold that internally I have not really been able to find much about it but I know that it was quite good and that he um, also you know was exporting hides and tallow or at one point he went the Russian uh, had kidnapped a Lutes and brought them down to hunt for otter skins, right? And that was up at Fort Ross, Bodega Bay. But between 1810 and 1824, the missions didn't have any money. And the Russians wanted to hunt otters off of San Luis Obispo. So they actually, it looked like uh, they got some of the Spanish at least. I think De La Guerra knew about it. He was the commander of Presidio Santa Barbara, and, and, and um, Martinez may have organized it. And the, the point was that they would permit the Russians, to Aluts to land in that part of the coast. Although they mostly hunted in the water, but they would need to go and get water sometimes on land. And um, the Aleuts were sometimes killed at San Francisco because they were not allowed to do that. But anyway, Martinez was splitting the profits with the Russians, which is something American traders had done for a while. American traders between 1804 and 1810 would kind of go in on a joint venture with the Russians and hunt off of California. And that was a way to avoid getting caught by the Spanish because the Spanish didn't have any patrol ships. So if the New England men, the New England men couldn't catch otters on their own, but if they could get the Russians to bring down a bunch of Aleuts in their kayaks, the Aleuts were the greatest otter hunters of all time. You know, they were kind of like one with the ocean and, and then they could catch the otter. So there had been these joint ventures between New Englanders and Russians off of Spanish California between 1804 and 1810 and in between 1810 and 1824 um, I can't remember exactly what year I bet it was like 1816 or 1818 Martinez was uh, talking about you know that the Russians were going to come down and they were all going to go out and hunt otters off off the shore so these were just different ways that he could make a lot of money and then of course he had to give a cut of that to the military, but he resisted giving too much of a cut to the military. So between 1810 and 1824, it was a big period of crisis. And, and if the missionary as the leader of a mission could resist giving a huge cut to the military, people were going to be better off. The Indians at the mission were going to be better off. Um, and Martinez seems to, seems to have been kind of effective at that. Um, but like I said, I don't think he was a guy who loved Indians or anything. I just think that he resented having to give a cut. So he, and he had, he was pretty effective at avoiding it. You know, he had his own cove, so he could, he didn't have to take things to Santa Barbara to arrange for Delaguerra to sell them. He could sell them himself. So that gave him a little more. But he got along really well with Delaguerra too. So So, I don't know all the details. I wish I knew all the details, but there's some pretty good stories in there.
0: Well, yeah. And in fact, could you, Um, In the time we've got left, could you talk a little bit about Jose de la Guerra? You've you've written about him and and his activities. You mentioned he's the Presidio Commander at Santa Barbara. Um, Yeah, could you tell us a little bit about him or the things that you found out that are interesting about him and his activities?
1: Well, a few years ago, I read this book called What is Global History? It's a tiny little slim volume by Pamela Kyle Crossley, who is not too far from me here in New Hampshire. And she kind of made a pretty good case that you're going to find out more about things if you study them from the perspective of two different continents. And I guess in my heart of hearts, I always knew that to understand Spanish and Mexican California, you probably should go to Spain and Mexico. <laughs> but I had kind of thought, well, you know, I mean, how much could one person do? You know, I already had to learn Spanish and study some anthropology and some history in addition to economics and, you know, but So I went to Mexico to a conference because I had kids, so I couldn't really go to Mexico for a long period of time. Um, So I went for four days. And in the four days, I met all these economic historians in Mexico that were writing about the business elite of Mexico between 1769 and 1810. And so I said, well, you know, and it turned out the business elite in Mexico city was the wealthiest in the Spanish empire. So you would think it was Madrid or something, right? But it wasn't. And in fact, this made Madrid angry that, you know, it's kind of like here in the United States, a lot of the wealth is in New York city, right? Or Maybe San Francisco, but it kind of can make people angry that it's not spread out evenly. Right. Well, it was, it made the, it made the Spanish angry that their empire was supposed to benefit them and it seemed to be benefiting the Mexicans even more. So that was the center of wealth. And these Mexicans were not Mexicans actually, they were people, the Mexican mercantile elite came from the very northern coast of Spain. So it turned out, so I said, well, there's this guy, Jose de la Guerra, and I heard that he was connected to um, commerce. And the Mexico City historian, um, Guillermina del Valle, she said, uh, why, yes, I have this little document about him. And it turned out that, that that so the full name was Commander Jose Antonio de la Guerra y Noriega in Santa Barbara. And at the time, people called him Noriega. And it turns out that the name Noriega was associated with a family that did mercantile trade all over the Pacific Rim in Asia. And de la Guerra had grown up in... Asturias, which is very close to the northern piece of Spain, and he came when he was 13 to apprentice with his uncle in Mexico City, Pedro González de Noriega, and his uncle was one of the wealthiest men in Mexico City. Um, He was kind of like the buddy of the wealthiest man, so he wasn't like the wealthiest, most powerful, whose name was Gabriel Yermo. He was like the second, but when it came Th- these merchants would display their wealth in part by donating to the crown. If the crown was in an emergency, they would donate some of their money to the crown. So after 1810, the crown was in an emergency and you see that Pedro Gonzalez de Noriega donated as much as the wealthiest men in town. So he was among the wealthiest merchants in the world at that time. And he at some point arranged for the young Jose Antonio de la Guerra y Noriega to go into the military supply line in Mexico City. And what my friend showed me from Mexico City was a document saying that um, Pedro Gonzalez de Noriega was involved in the otter trade. And he had received permission to export otter hides from Mexico to Asia. And it doesn't say, well, where was he going to get the otter hides? But the obvious place would be California. So that was really an eye-opener for me, because I think we in, you know, for a long time I've been thinking, why did the Spaniards come here to California? I mean, not to New Hampshire, California. Did they come because they were pious? Did they come because it was a strategic defense objective? Or did they come for the profit motive? And almost all the literature said they came either out of piety or they came out of the strategic defense motive. But here, I was seeing that there was actually a commercial motive for Jose Antonio de la Guerra y Noriega to come to California. And that was really eye-opening for me. And again, I found that out a few years ago, but I think since then, I've been trying to fill in all the blanks in my knowledge to be able to really grasp that. Because the big blank in my knowledge was the connection between Hispanic California and Asia, like, I didn't really know there was a connection. And even if I knew there was a little bit about the fur trade, I had never really considered the fur trade to be about Asia. But actually, it is. It's, And I'm realizing now that the military supply line from California was out of San Blas on the Pacific coast of Mexico. And the Navy in San Blas sent ships to California, but they also sent ships to Manila. And when I'm also... so 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 a person could get on... And and there's this new book by J.M. Mancini, and she says that the missionary in San Francisco got on a boat in 1779 and went shopping in Manila to outfit Mission San Francisco and came back in 1782.
0: I saw that referenced in your article, and I was just amazed. Here, exactly, here's this priest getting on a boat to Manila to go shopping and staying (laughs) there for a couple of years and coming back. But it also, the, the other thing that, it just made me think: is that is that this connection between the west coast of North America and Asia, the Philippines, Japan, mm-hmm. et cetera, is foundational? It, it goes way back. It's not it's not something recent.
1: Yeah, that's really true. You know, a few years ago, I was at the Western Historical Association meeting, and there was some panel. And somebody spoke about the Black Panthers, and then an Asian woman got up and she said, Well, the history of Asian Americans in California isn't as deep or interesting as the Black Panthers. And I thought, No, actually, it's really the reverse. Like, much as I'm fascinated by the Black Panthers because I grew up in Berkeley, like 63 to 81, I, that, you know, African Americans with the U.S. heritage really came after world war II, to California and the Manila Galleon has been going past California since 1566. And there had always been this assumption that even though the Manila Galleon went past, it didn't stop in California or blah, blah, blah. But actually it did stop in California. I think that on the official routes, it says that the Manila Galleon is going to kind of stay off the shore But there's so many different times when you read about the galleon putting in at Monterey to fix a mast or stopping to get water, you know, that you start to realize that actually the galleon stopped a lot. And and who knows what happened between 1566 and 1769. You know, I I bet there were some Manila Galleon pilots that had made relationships with Native people in various locations where they felt they could stop and refuel, but I don't know that. That's just pure speculation, but sometimes you have to speculate a little bit to start looking for the data. Like if you don't, you know, you, you speculate and then you have to look and see if there is any data. But if you don't speculate at all, you'll never find the data. You know, you have to ask the question before you can see something. So I don't know if the Manila galleon stopped in California. Well, I do know they stopped in California before 1769. I just don't know if they, if there were captains that made relationships with Native people where they would stop over and over again. But I do know that from I think it's 15. I think it's 1777. Oh well, now I can't quite remember. It's like 1777 to 17. 93, something like that. Maybe it's 78 to 94. Anyway, the Galleon was ordered to stop in Monterey every year,
0: and it did. Well, it's interesting you should mention about the Galleon possibly stopping You know, in the, in the 16th and 17th century. When, when you think about it, if um, Rodriguez Cabrillo goes up the coast in 1542, and his instructions are explicitly to see if there are people who would be interested in trading and he meets a number of indigenous communities, right. Kumiai mm-hmm. and Chumash, et cetera. Then it would, it would stand to reason that if, that there are, if there are captains coming up, up and down the coast on the galleon, that they may stop from time to time, if not just to refuel, take on water, et cetera, but mm-hmm. also to to make contact with those people there who they knew were there then.
1: Yeah, well, and I would think that if you're doing this voyage over and over again, you would like to know there's a place where it's relatively safe to stop. But, you know, I don't know that that happened before 1769. I do know that the Galleon did stop in California between 1769, because I think I saw something from 1734. I think Alan Kemp had a book where he talked about in 1734, the Galleon stopped at Monterey. And, and there were directions, like the, the captain was reading directions that had been left by previous pilots, that if you go here in Monterey, you can find fresh water and you can find ships adequate to repair a mast. So it didn't seem like it was a single stop. It seemed like, not not necessarily that it happened every year, but it, but that it was a known place where you could handle your difficult zone. So, but it wasn't just the Manila Galleon that, so the Spanish route from Asia went from Manila up north past Japan and then around the far northern Pacific and then around Cape Mendocino, you turned downwards. So that was the Spanish route, not just for the Manila Galleon, but the Royal Philippine Company, too, which was founded in 1785. Um, And I see between 1810 and 1824, there were... A couple private ships that stopped in California coming from Manila and sold goods to the military. So the military was in trouble, right, because they were not getting their supply line from San Blas after 1810. And for a while, they still had money in the bank in Mexico City. They just didn't have physical ships to bring the goods up because there was war down there. It was diverting the ships. And so they were able to write these checks to the ships coming from Manila. But that's just the whole, the whole idea that a military commander here in California was connected to one of the wealthiest families in the Spanish empire, and that the trading route to Asia passed by California pretty much all the time, are both things that have really changed what I see. And I guess I still haven't finished, you know, changing it, but it started, it's led me to ask a lot of questions because otter hides were selling in 1778 for $120 a hide, which would be $2,500 a hide in 2019 dollars. Wow. So the conventional wisdom is that the Spanish only had one guy engaged in the otter trade, Vicente Fasadre, because Adele Ogden wrote about that in 1941. And her book was great, but I don't think she was right that he was the only one. And in fact, in Spanish, there's there's discussion of four or five different otter ventures. But nobody has mentioned the supply line of the military being used. But I think the supply line of the military was used for, first, for, for getting the kinds of goods from Mexico City that would entice Indians to hunt otter. And secondly, to ship the hides from the California ports down to San Blas and then on to Manila. I found out there was a guy named Pedro Perez de Tarle in Manila who had a relationship with a, a Chinese merchant. I can't remember his name, but I mean, he actually has a name. We know his name. There was this group of Catholic Spanish-speaking Chinese in Manila for centuries. And the Spanish would trade with China by going through the, um, they're called sanglés, the sanglés. So the sanglés community of Chinese in Manila was kind of the contact point for a long time for the um, Hispanic merchants. It was kind of changing around 1785, it sort of switches from the Chinese speaking, the Spanish speaking Chinese in Manila to Canton, the Chinese in Canton. And and in fact, I think some of the sanglés moved to Canton. So I think there were Spanish speaking Chinese in Canton too. But um, anyway, Luis Perez de Tagle, I now think, was probably involved with trade with California for a long time mm-hmm. because in 1801, he put forward this suggestion that he supply California from Manila. He said, you don't need to bring stuff all the way from Mexico City. We can supply California with settlers and with goods from Manila.
0: Settlers and goods from Manila. How interesting. Yeah, it is really interesting,
1: isn't it? And, I, and he, you know, what's interesting is that Some Mexican scholars say, whenever you see these proposals, kind of assume that they're already in place, but they're not blessed by the crown. So I don't think he was bringing people from Manila, but I think he was probably trading in goods in California and obtaining otter hides in California. Well, he pretty much talks about it. He talks about obtaining otter hides and he talks about how he's been to Monterey. So there was some trade going on. You know, the question is, how big was it? So, so my sense is that the military supply line was actually involved with significant amounts of otter hunting. I found a couple really interesting scandals. One was uh, one of the, so every Presidio had a supply master and he was often a man from the business community like De La Guerra was. So in a way you could say that the supply master was a position where a Mexico family could get you know, a mercantile family could get a person placed in one of the great ports on the Pacific by having them enter to be a supply master. And so one of the guys, and I can't remember which one it was, but he was accused in the middle of the otter boom, which is like 1780s, he was accused of diverting the postage stamp revenue, which I think was like 2,000 pesos a year. He was diverting it to buying otter hides so I think that means he was buying trinkets which could be exchanged with Indians for otter hides so I don't know how many otter hides he would get you know but I think it was not a small quantity but I could, could be and he said well I was going to pay it back you know like after I converted the postage revenue into trinkets and got otter hides and made $2,500 per otter hide well that's 2019 dollars right so it would have been different it was about and that's not what they would have got locally. But anyway, after he got his money for his otter hides, he was going to pay back the postal revenue. So it's kind of interesting. In California, you know, even in Manila, people didn't always get 120 pesos per hide. It slowed down to like 40 pesos at one point. And Vicente Fasadre only got 15 pesos per hide. But I suspect that's because he got played somehow. I think he was manipulated and he wasn't a great businessman, but 40 seems kind of normal. And then the other one was they were taking, they were taking supplies up to Nuka sound. And, um,
0: and Nuka sounds up on the Pacific Northwest coast would be right
1: off of modern British Columbia. And it was supposed to be the greatest otter field in the world. And every imperialist power was sending ships up there and messing with the native people. They did really a lot of damage to the native people in this kind of... It was like kind of the gold rush. Some people call it the soft gold rush. Um, And they got these otter hides. So anyway... (laughs) They were taken, So they, they go from San Blas up to Nuka, and then they're going to come to the California Presidios. So they're carrying the supplies for the California Presidios. And after they do whatever they need to do in Nuka, they're going to come and deliver these supplies. But by the time they get to the California Presidios, a third of the supplies are gone. <laughs> and, and of course, the implication is that they exchanged those supplies for otter hides up in Nuka.
0: So, so otter hides were, what would you call them? I mean... They were the the Bitcoin of, of the time. Yeah, they
1: were the Bitcoin of the time, yeah. It's a good analogy.
0: So then I guess sort of to wrap up, because, um, I mean, we could probably go on for three hours, or I could I could ask you questions um, for the next three hours. But to wrap up, what would you say that studying the, the economics or, yeah, following the economic trail of – early California history has made you realize and that would be good for other people to know as well. Um, yeah. With what, with all you've, with all you've worked on and studied.
1: Well, I guess one of the things is this, this influence on it, that the connection between Manila and California was very tight. So that's an interesting angle right now to me is the, the Asian influence on California's economic development, Um, But I think probably what most people would find fascinating is the part about how the relationship between Indians and Spaniards changed. So we tend to study in the United States really well the struggles of Indians, but we don't study too well the political and economic changes at the level of empires. So the fact that Missions and Presidios lost their financing in 1810, put huge pressure on Indian congregations. And the pressure was that the missionary was supposed to take the land of the Indians and give it to the military. So it was a big pressure on missionaries too. Um, And that I think, so I think it's funny, nobody else had really seen um, what an impact that would make. Like some archeologists had said, that things really changed on missions between like the, the pace of life was really different in the 1820s. There was a lot more technology output per hour was really high, but I think they'd never got it. That the reason output per hour on missions went up is because there was this huge pressure suddenly from the unpaid military for the Indians to produce either goods that the soldiers could use, right? Because you either have to give the soldiers, the Indians land or you have to give them an, enough you know, replace their their supplies, their payroll with with goods, or um, or you had to export Indian-produced stuff and get money for it that you could give a cut to the military. So Indians. Uh, so missions were really institutions of communal production and distribution for the Indian congregation before 1810, and after 1810, there was you know certainly a share of Indian produced output was taken and handed over to the to the military. In some ways, I think you can start to see militaries becoming subordinate emissions becoming subordinate to the military starts in 1810 and it, it gets really intense. And then ultimately when missions are abolished, that's kind of like the, the total subordination of missions to the military, because when missions are abolished in 1834, they're just handed over to military men that were, Highly connected to the most powerful. So I think that's the part. If I hadn't asked these economic questions, I wouldn't see those things. I mean, the reason that other people don't see them is because they don't ask about the economics, right? It's only me that asked about the economics. And sometimes I felt like, well, why did I study economics? Everybody who does this is either an anthropologist or an archaeologist or or a historian. I should be too. I'd have some buddies. (laughs) But then I think the fact that I see I ask these questions that other people don't ask. Like, I actually think that you can see more about the reasons for conflict um, when you realize those things about payroll and the pressure. I don't know. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it sure does. I mean, it's the old adage, follow the money, right? You find out a lot of interesting things when you follow the money.
1: Well, yeah, actually, that was, I was going to call an article, follow the money. (laughs) And the people said, that was a really dumb title. You got to come up with something better than that. But and maybe that was true, but as a um, as a method of you know figuring out what's going on, I, I think yeah, you follow the money, you find a lot of interesting stuff.
0: Well, Marie, uh, thank you so much for this, and um, yeah, I I learned a ton just listening, and in fact, I could probably write down a list of twenty or thirty more questions to ask you. So. Maybe in the future, if you're willing uh, and available, we can do it again. I think it's... Well, sure
1: we can do it again, but we don't have to do it. Yeah. You know, it takes, it takes a while to digest some things too. Right. right?
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: I probably hit you with too many things.
0: Not at all. Not at all. Um, no, but once again, this was really great and I, I really want to, I want to thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the California frontier podcast. If you liked what you heard, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the California Frontier Project website at www.californiafrontier.net. If you have a question, a comment, or a suggestion, make sure and drop me a line at Damien at californiafrontier.net.